The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover or build a god when we reach the cyber ocean floor. People claim to remember past lives, I claim to remember a different, very different present life. The psychotic drones, where the mystic swims, they're drowning. Hello, welcome back to the Astral Flight Simulation Podcast, where we navigate the digital world through art and culture. And today we have the final uh, judge from the Passage Prize uh, Quartet, uh, Mr. Benjamin Braddock. He goes by Dr. Benjamin Braddock on Twitter. Uh, Mr. Braddock, I don't know if you are actually a medical doctor or not. You don't have to answer that. However, you were tweeting quite a lot about COVID and, and I heard you on another podcast uh, I think a dispatch from an undisclosed location somewhere in the Caribbean, uh, offering what I'll call a counter narrative to the uh, the COVID hysteria in the mainstream media. Um, so you were between that and the Passage Prize, you were somebody that I really wanted to to have on this this podcast as an early guest. So I'm very happy to have you here, and I'm grateful to you for uh, agreeing to come on. Uh, feel free to give yourself an introduction. I, I hardly wonder if you even need one. Um, because you've established quite a following for yourself. And uh, as I said, with the COVID hysteria, you've also uh, done the same type of tweeting about uh, the recent situation in Ukraine, which is why I'm having you on now. So thank you for joining. And uh, I think we're gonna have a pretty good discussion. I, want, I wanted to rush this interview uh, to get it out ASAP because of everything going on in Ukraine and with the global economy. So I appreciate you doing this kind of last minute. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I uh, uh, appreciate uh any opportunity to come and uh, do autistic rants. So, uh, and I think that was a good intro that, that pretty much covers it. Um, I'm not great at self descriptions. Uh, I've never uh, needed Tinder. So, um, <laughs> and I've never figured out how to do a bio for myself. So uh, we can just get, that's right. okay. That's my job. That's all right. I just didn't know if uh, you had something you wanted to shill or anything like that, that I was unaware of. But yeah, no, my job is to uh, is to uh, inflate my guest's ego, but uh, I wouldn't be having you on if if you didn't have an interesting take on, you know, the world we live in today. And me and you have talked a couple times and I wanted to um, sort of reiterate and go over some of the stuff we went over before. So listen, if anybody is interested in the passage prize, the announced the uh, winners just got announced and I'm doing a whole mini series on it. And maybe at the end, uh, Ben, if I can call you that, I don't know if you go by Dr. Braddock, uh, yeah, we can get yeah. into that, but uh, let's get right down to it. We don't have all the time in the world, so let's get right down to it. Uh, the global supply chain and um, the precarious state of the economy in the global supply chain is being exacerbated by uh, the war in Ukraine. Now, I don't know if you had a specific topic. Me and you talked last week. I don't know if you had a specific topic you wanted to start with, or um, I could get us started by uh, mentioning a couple things, the war in, the war in Ukraine directly affects uh, some pretty uh, some pretty big central issues in the in the global supply chain that have already been strained uh, just by COVID. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, I mean we were already facing some uh, some major issues 
uh, getting these untangled and, you know, just getting out from under the disruption from COVID. <clears throat> and then, you know, this hits and it's like, you know, we joke that, uh, well, you know, Putin should get the Nobel Prize in medicine because he cured COVID. But, uh, you know, it is still ripping around in some areas. Uh, China, it's just going totally vertical. Um, you know, it's they're kind of back to square one. Uh, and, you know, you have these. Uh, so that was so that's the latest development. So first thing is we had the war come along. Right. And Ukraine grows an enormous amount of food. Um, particularly the, you know, uh, feeder inputs for livestock, right? So crops like corn, uh, wheat, other grains that you would feed to uh, cattle or, uh, you know, chickens or whatever in Western Europe, um, you know, to fatten them up. And so now you have, uh, you know, President Macron talking about uh, protein security, right just you know that it's it might be a struggle to just have enough basic protein for everyone uh you know in western europe uh and then he's like you know then africa is a whole other story so um yeah that's that's pretty significant because ukraine is kind of the big bread basket of europe but uh you also have belarus and russia which are major major producers of fertilizer and american farmers were already having uh significant issues getting fertilizer this year i talked you know i talked to some and you know some had one guy said he was paying six times what the price was last year for uh you know his nitrogen-based fertilizers and it was hard to even get a hold of it right because you know you, you're you're paying six times as much but there's still shortages terms of supply so before all this happened you know we were already kind of uh dealing with a bad situation on that angle and then now you have uh russia is going to restrict the export uh of these commodities to unfriendly countries and then now you have uh you know china going back into lockdown um you know, and, and Shenzhen, right? So you've got the iPhone factory shutting down and, and this sort of thing. So, you know, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff hitting all at once. And, you know, I, I think the vibes have shifted for sure. And we're now in a, uh, you know, the kind of phase where, you know, things really start popping off left and right all over the place. I'm reminded by a quote, I think it was by Lennon, who said, um, you know, something like, uh, I think it was uh, some, some decades take only days or something to that effect. But it was, you know, saying that like sometimes, you know, you can go like a decade and it feels like nothing's happened. And then sometimes you can go a few days and it feels like, you know, a decade because so much is happening. Uh, you know, we don't really distribute all these happenings out you know neatly across the time span it seems like they just all happen in clusters and you know uh with interminable periods of nothing happening so i think we're kind of in that and the 
the latest one today is uh, seems like Kamala Harris's husband has COVID, which would be pretty unremarkable. But you know, there's a great chance that she has it and is in the uh, infectious phase. And she was at a bill signing, you know, with Biden this morning. So, you know, something could be popping We will off. soon find out if he I'm has really U- if he has USA running through his veins. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a big test. I'm, I'm, uh, if you're listening, and I know you guys are, you know, I'm standing by. I'll come to the White House, but I won't make any guarantees. Well, maybe I don't know if he's been getting his daily doses of sun gazing in. So hopefully he's got enough vitamin D to uh, fight it off. Or, but uh, the, the Lenin quote real quick is there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happens. And yeah. it just seems over the years that that becomes more and more true. And it seems like we're in the weeks where decades happen more often than not. Yeah, I uh, agree on that. And, you know, we're look at the past couple of years and you know it seems like we've kind of entered a new paradigm of lurching from one uh hysterical crisis to the next uh not that there aren't real events underpinning this it's just that the level of intensity you know it's so much more than uh, you know i i've remembered for you know any previous things uh big happenings and i wonder if it's a you know combination of uh atomization in society and the uh you know effects of social media you know this uh creating a kind of uh hyper reality that at the same time feels very unreal yeah well that is exactly the uh kind of the the perspective of my entire show that's it's exactly what what we're doing here and uh the, the type of thing we're trying to observe and and kind of chronicle and try to get a sense of where we are. Um, no, no, so it's good that you brought up the uh, the fertilizer situation because I actually wanted to talk about uh, what's going on with cattle ranchers and the supply of beef, the global supply of beef, because um, of course farmers are just taking a pummeling and, and the small independent farmer in America has just been uh, uh, crushed decade after decade after decade and and it's a shrinking sector of the economy um over time and it's to the point where i i almost think we can envision a future very soon in which it's completely gone in which the the independent american farmer just doesn't exist anymore um big corporations are buying up more and more land and planting more you know more and more monocropping or using it for timber harvesting and and other endeavors to sell on the international market and, uh, you know, uh, finished products from the international market are coming in and undercutting uh, the ranchers. So to hear that they're they're being squeezed on the fertilizer and it's just only one of the angles from which they're getting it, because, of course, they they are not seeing a increase in the return on their their livestock that, uh, you know, we're having inflation, record inflation at the record. Uh, well, the highest inflation in the last 40 years anyway, it just top seven percent this year. And I was recently reading about how that money is not getting back to them. It's not getting back to the ranchers because they sell to the feedlots and the feedlots are getting uh, their prices. Uh, They're getting the prices, right? That, you know, the big five meat packers and, and this sort of thing. The same thing happened with lumber, actually. Uh, lumber prices went through the roof during COVID. 
And I found out that actually the people who uh, own the timber land and the people who cut the trees down uh, were not earning any more than, than they had before. Yeah. And uh, then, and the retail stores weren't making more. It was pretty much all going to the mills. Um, I'm not at all surprised to, to learn that. And the retail stores are also as much as, um, you know, we could probably find things to complain about with retail stores. They do imply a lot, employ a lot more people and better, more gainful employment than say Amazon and Walmart. Walmart is a retail store, but those are the two biggest employers now. And, uh, you know, all the other retails are just getting totally bypassed by all this. Yeah. And, uh, I will say the one thing that, that probably is, uh, the white pill buried deep in a, uh, a steaming cow turd of a black pill is uh the people who are doing you know regenerative farming and stuff like uh the joel salatins of the world uh i think they're going to uh capitalize off of this pretty well uh it's going to be like the lo- local who, small farmers and stuff you mean yeah the ones who are not the ones who are not using a lot of heavy inputs the ones who are you know, they're not monocropping and the, the reason fertilizer is so crucial is that you know, our industrial large-scale monocrop farms, uh, they've depleted the soil so much that the soil is really just a substrate that you pump the hydroponic chemicals into, right? It's, it's not living. Uh, but people, farmers who, you know, are doing a more traditional uh, kind of farming, like what you would see maybe before World War II, uh, yeah, they they're doing rotations, right? So they have like a cow pasture, but they'll rotate the cows through, rotate chickens through different livestock, and then they'll plant on it, right? So they have, it's been fertilized uh, because they actually have animals, right? So most produce farmers, um, they don't have any kind of livestock. They don't have real manure. You know, if they're going to get manure, they're going to get it from like a dairy farm or somewhere. They're you know, they'll liquefy it and shoot out, or even worse, they'll get it from a city, um, sewage, you know, human sewage, uh, which we did anyway. And at the end of 2020, and we ended up giving the deer COVID because this human feces was like laden with the virus. Is is that how the deer got it? I remember that. That's how the deer got it. I did not know that. Do you, have you ever read that book? Toxic sludge is good for you. Have you heard of that book? I have not. Oh man. It's all about PR companies and how they sell um they sell any kind of garbage to to anyone and uh the the book is named after the marketing of human waste as a fertilizer um toxic sludge is good for you it was this it was this big advertising push uh that was of course outsourced to some pr firm that totally sold it and now our food is uh not only being fertilized with human waste but apparently it's literally spreading disease to wildlife yeah. And yeah. And the way we grow food too. I mean, that's the thing we're, we're really getting to a point like things are catching up with us. You know what we, the post-war industrialization um, and you know, the, the way that we could get you know, a lot of volume out, not a lot of quality, right. But it's, it's the illusion of prosperity because you sacrifice quality for quantity. And so, you know, you can put up, um, you know, enough to where you get, you get a short-term bump in uh, standard of living, but you know, it's really not sustainable over the long term uh, to do this stuff. But the reason we could do the kind of industrial farming, particularly with livestock 
was we just developed all of these new, you know, antibiotics, right? And, you know, the hormone technology was new and all of this. Stuff. Well, we're now in a situation where, so the antibiotics, the significance of that um, was that you could, and not just antibiotics, but like uh, vaccines for poultry, um, you know, vaccinations against various other uh, livestock diseases, um, you know, for a while you could then start crowding the animals in in really close confines, right? You couldn't do that before because they would get like Merrick's disease or something and keel over and die or, you know, bird flu or whatever else, right? So you had to have like these sanitary practices. You had to, you know, do things a certain way. You basically had to, you know, kind of live in balance with nature. Uh, so for, you know, the past, uh, 70 years or so, we've been able to live out of balance with nature through technology. But the, the problem is tech, nature is tech catching back up with us, right? So we now have these uh, strains of bacteria, strains of viruses, uh, fungi that are becoming resistant to anything we can throw at it. Um, there's a, uh, a guy I've talked to uh, through Twitter who's doing some really amazing research into this stuff like he he tests the strains directly right um and yeah you know, i'm sorry strains of the antibiotic uh, like strains of you know antibiotic resistant right okay right? so one came from um the feces of a chicken that was in one of these like massive um industrial chicken houses <clears throat> and the bacteria there wasn't an antibiotic that could kill it it was like you know just like the top 20 you try to use against it and it uh it's just impervious to it and then they tried the still the silver stain and usually silver will just you know kill any microbe uh and it resisted that too so we're breeding you know we're breeding these super bugs and you know with uh you know even before covid you know we were seeing these outbreaks we knew that you know, there was going to be um, some other serious livestock pandemics happen. Uh, there was, you know, a big one of uh, swine fever in China in like 2018 or 2019, you know, bird flu before that. Uh, for some reason, China is just like where all this stuff comes from. And it's, uh, I say some reason. I mean, the reason is it's like one of the filthiest places on earth. Yeah. Uh, and should probably just be nuked. Like, you know irradiate everything to keep anything else from emerging but it uh that's not how COVID came about COVID came about because we had a uh virologist at university in north carolina ralph barrick who uh created a technique for resurrecting dead viruses and so the chinese were collecting all of these uh coronavirus samples from bats and caves around china but the problem was they couldn't keep them alive in the lab they couldn't culture it right, right? So, you know, outside of the conditions that it, you know, was optimized for, right? Like, so like a bat, um, outside of that, it's just, you know, it dies quickly and they couldn't figure out a way to keep it alive. Well, Barrick uh, knew that they were collecting these samples. And so he made a deal with, uh, um, 
they called her the bat lady, right? She was running the program at Wuhan where they were going out and collecting samples. He made a deal with her to where um, he traded his technology for resurrecting dead viruses for her samples. Um, and then they worked together and they, they grafted a uh, bat coronavirus spike protein onto a, uh, like a mouse coronavirus. Um, and they made a lot of other, you know, hybrids, right? You take various viruses, sometimes, in, you know, HIV-1 um, and just, you know, create entirely new viruses from scratch from them. You know, you're just like playing God essentially. And, um, you know, that that was risky. People and back in 2015, when this was being published in the scientific journals, people were flagging this as a risk. Uh, but I'm still not sure that it, you know, jumped out just like when a lab worker and spread from there because that that kind of thing, you know, there have been a lot of lab leaks of pathogens um, throughout medical research history, but they've never really sparked a pandemic. But the one thing that has sparked a, a pandemic uh, that's similar has been when uh, they've tried to create live attenuated vaccines that uh, were not properly attenuated. And then they start de-attenuating and working themselves back to their original strength. And I think that's actually what happened uh, in China. Because UNC, uh, once again, you know, the Ralph's Bar Ralph Barrick's organization down there, they were working on the only live attenuated vaccine for SARS, you know, the original SARS. And there was evidence that, you know, this has been circulating in China since, um, you know, early 2019, right? There were massive orders of PCR testing equipment that were placed in uh, May of 2019. Um, but it, you know, it seemed to be truly like a cold when it first uh, was getting out and about. And, it, and they were probably doing testing on this uh, SARS vaccine as like a, to see if it would provide immunity against original SARS, right? So to do like some sort of live uh, pseudovirus, right? Or, you know, whatever they were working on the lab, right? You give them like a attenuated live version of it and see if it provides like a cross immunity to original SARS because they, they had never been successful at making a SARS vaccine because it, uh, every time you vaccinated the animals, um, they would get antibody dependent enhancement and die. So that's, I think that's what they were doing is they were trying to tweak, uh, the, the original coronavirus. They were trying to come up with a coronavirus that was close enough to original SARS, um, uh, but different this is, this enough. This is fascinating. Can I interrupt you real quick? Who yeah, was yeah. funding all this research? Uh, you were. And yeah, I, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, so the you know the grant documents they're online. They're very upfront about it. Um, so one of the main funders uh, of this, he's the, basically the guy who runs around getting the government grants and then directs them to this research. The guy by the name of uh, Peter Dejac, he runs the Eco Health Alliance, and you know they've got this sort of uh, global research network and this sort of thing. So he'll get grants from like uh you know usaid like our, our foreign aid department uh health and human services national academy of science um national institute of health 
national, you know, infectious disease and allergy centers, you know, Fauci's organization. I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of grant money that goes, DOD money goes to this. Uh, yeah, once you start getting into where a lot of our biotech money uh, goes to, it, it's pretty, uh, pretty sketchy. You know, like we've, we've got the, uh, of course, or, you know, the, the latest news is right, our uh, bio labs in Ukraine, right? But we've got also have bio labs in the Republic of Georgia and in Kazakhstan. Um, where we just scooped up these old Soviet scientists who worked on the Soviet bioweapons program and just put them to work for us. But we call it biodefense because uh, when Richard Nixon was president, he you know banned us from making uh, offensive biological weapons. But the uh, bioweapons community in the U.S., they're, they're, all they did was rebrand. They just said, okay, well, we're allowed to do biodefense, right? So... You can do something, um, you know, you, you say it's for defensive purposes, but you're developing the offensive weapon so you can, like, test your, you know, ability to, you know, like you're, you're creating a new virus, but you're doing it so you can make a vaccine for it. And so then you can justify it as defense, even though this is not something that's ever going to emerge in nature. So one other uh, case where we had, uh, you know, virus get out and cause a global pandemic from a uh, live attenuated vaccine was uh, actually in Russia, the 1977 Russian flu. And that was after uh, we had a swine flu scare here in the U.S. Basically amounted to one soldier at Fort Dix uh, had the flu and was forced to like go out on PT while he was, you know, sick and dehydrated. Now, was uh, this H1N1? With the swine yeah, flu, yeah, that was it made big headlines. Isn't isn't coronavirus a mutation of the H one N one virus? Uh, no, not that I know of. I mean, it's it's they're pretty dissimilar. Okay, uh, it's I think H one N one like originated like as a swine flu. But I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes, no, I'm COVID is SARS. Excuse COVID me. Is SARS. SARS was also making headlines back around the same time. So that was, a, all right, so that was our second swine flu scare. Yes, H1N1 yes, yes. Again. But this one was the 76 H1N1. It was, uh, so there was a soldier at Fort Dix and he basically his, uh, he was forced to do exercise while he was really sick with the flu and he died as a result. And so they did like a sample and the CDC was like, we think this was, we think this is H1N1 which was a problem because H1N1 had naturally went out of circulation uh, around like 1958. It was replaced by another uh, flu, you know, like in a recombination event, which was actually good because it was a much milder flu, right? So it didn't have the mortality alert. Now the flu wasn't killing as many people by then because we had the population immunity build up, but then almost 20 years goes by between the last time we had H1N1 circulating through the population and 1976. And so the fear was that this was really going to uh, affect anyone who was like under the age of 20, because they wouldn't have had the previous immunity to H1N1 that, you know, uh, all of the older people had had. So they do this rush to develop a vaccine. And the vaccine companies were like, well, 
to do it on this timeline in time for the next flu season, um, we're going to need you to get rid of like the liability protections because this is just, you know, we can't do it. So it was like operation warp speed. Right. But this was really where, you know, since then uh, the vaccine companies have been protected, uh, you know, in some form or another pretty strongly against any kind of uh, legal responsibility for, you know, what their products may do to someone. Um, but anyway, they, so they got their, you know, they got their liability protections and then they proceeded and it was all set up to where the vaccine was rolled out October and the presidential election was in November. So it was like the great October surprise, you know, President Ford is going to save all these people, you know, the whole country from another 1918 style pandemic. Blah, blah. Well, what actually happened was um, it was a terrible vaccine. Uh you know, a rush job and all this. And we instead had newspaper headlines of like old people falling over within minutes of being injected. Like, you know, there were, I think four in one clinic in one day in Pittsburgh. Uh, you had, you know, nightly news programs of uh, teachers that were now in like wheelchairs, right? From William Morris and all that. And then you had Jimmy Carter who like very pointedly refused to take the vaccine. Uh, and he won very narrowly. So, I mean, a lot of people credit, uh, you know, it was like the swine flu fiasco that actually put Jimmy Carter in the White House. Well, anyway, the Russians uh, and the Chinese were like, okay, we need our vaccine like the Americans. Like they actually rated American expertise as like being competent enough that if the Americans were looking for a vaccine, they felt they should be doing it too. And so they created their their own disaster of a vaccine. And uh, yeah, so it was a live attenuated vaccine. They injected it in a bunch of uh, military recruits in the Far East. So kind of along the uh, Siberian Chinese border and the virus uh, that was attenuated in the vaccine, it started de-attenuating and working itself back to like a full pathogenicity. And so we had a uh the 1977 russian flu uh, and that killed about 700,000 people uh so yeah i say it's like there's not a lot of cases where lab leaks have gotten out and caused a global pandemic but when you take a improperly attenuated virus and inject it in about 3,000 people you have enough uh kind of a seedbed to really get it started because you know if it's like a lab worker getting bit or like pricking their finger or something like that usually burns itself out like in every other case, including with SARS, which was even more deadly than uh, SARS too. And there were multiple leaks of SARS itself in China at the labs and it never went beyond, you know, like first or secondhand contacts. Um, but that's the other thing is like, this is uh, this was engineered to be more contagious and, you know, I'm not speculating on that. Like this is in the, uh, in the scientific journals where they're saying that, you know, we were changing the characteristics of these uh, viruses and these uh, chimeras uh, to make them, you know, more pathogenic and more contagious and you know, resistant to vaccination and all this stuff. So that's kind of uh yeah, that's kind of where we're at on that. And, you know, we'll, we'll see if this thing has like really gotten back to its full strength or 
if someone released an Omicron that, uh, you know, was supposed to provide immunity. I'm, I don't know. It's, uh, it's very sketchy because Omicron is a very different, uh, it's very different genetically from uh, every other variant. And, you know, it's almost like it was just hiding for two years and then suddenly made an appearance because like the closest ancestor is the original SARS strain or the original uh, Wuhan strain. So you're saying it's not a it evolved mutation from the previous information? No, because it you was... would be able to tell like if this was like an evolution of like Delta or Alpha or any of these. No, this is like a totally different branch on the tree. Did China uh, have the, the wave that we just had of Omicron and now they're having a second wave of Omicron or did, did the wave hit them later? The wave hit them later. It's now hitting, it, it's hitting them now. And, you know, it's going just straight up and um, like they flatten the curve but along the wrong axis. And, you know, I've, I've seen some, uh, some blue check pundits like wondering, like, why isn't China like using our mRNA vaccines and like, why aren't they making all the old people take it and all this? They're like, <laughs> yeah, like, why aren't they doing what we did, right? And, you know, I'm kind of wondering in the back of my mind, it's like, well, if they're the ones who've done the most covering up, like they may have a good reason, you know, why they're not importing the mRNA shot, um, you know, and why they're just going to try to get through this with, uh, you know, either protein-based vaccines or, you know, natural immunity or whatever. But we'll see. It's, this is, uh, it is significantly different enough in terms of uh you know like if you've had covid like delta or alpha or whatever else uh you know the ba2 strain which is like basically omicron too it's, it's different than the omicron we first saw in late november it's uh it has like more mutations uh that one is you know different enough that like vaccines provide no protection whatsoever and you know, natural immunity uh, can be broken through, but it doesn't seem to be nearly as bad in terms of symptoms as uh, either someone who's been like vax boosted, but has never been infected or someone who's been infected and then vaccinated. But so far, what I'm seeing is, uh, you know, people who are unvaccinated, but they have a prior infection, if they do get you know second round of covid it tends to be um you know kind of like stuffy nose really sore throat for a week and all that you know not not fun by any means but um you know they're not they're not going into respiratory failure so but i still say in those cases like you want to be taking aspirin for a good month or so because um the blood clot issue is still coming up with omicron and you know still kind of an open question like what the result of multiple infections is going to be you know as these things pile up um you know there's some smart researchers who say you know each time you're exposed to the spike protein again you know it's just slightly higher risk of one of these you know kind of weird freak outcomes like myocarditis or something but um you know that's just that's way up in the future we've got uh 
we've got a war that we're looking at now. But you know, those of us who are unvaccinated, you know, we're at least uh, we're at least like three of those events behind everyone who's been vaccine boosted. So, you know, they're the cumulative spike protein damage. Uh, you know, they're going to be way ahead of us. So that's uh, kind of the deal with that. And I, I'll, I will say too that like the early treatments are still you know working really well, and I think. With early treatment, you can reduce the viral load to the point where you're not going to have, you know, a lot early of treatment with what though? Uh, ivermectin is, you know, my usually the first one I grab off the shelf um, because it seems pretty good at binding the uh, spike proteins. But um, flush niacin uh, that that seems to help a lot with getting the, getting the spike protein out. Um, there've been people who've you know, had to take the vaccine for, you know, under coercion. Um, you asked me what to do. And I was like, well, you know, don't take it. But um, if you have to take it, you know, flush niacin started three days beforehand. And, you know, those people like they're, you know, I haven't heard of any really bad uh, vaccine side effects, you know, other than the normal, like, you know, sore arm or something kind of mild, but the, the level of serious side effects I've seen is uh, it's pretty crazy. Cause I had, you know, before all this, uh, you know, just vaccine injuries just seem really rare. Like the, really the worst thing I would have said about vaccines before all this was that, you know, they just don't seem to work. Right. Like the flu shot just doesn't really seem to, you know, keep people from getting the flu. So as an industry and as a market, the vaccine market, the vaccine industry seems like it kind of had no future uh, until uh, unless they started marketing to uh, largely ineffective vaccines because, you know, they had the polio and the tetanus and rheumatoid, um, not rheumatoid arthritis. Um, what's the other uh, MMR, MMR. Uh, measles, mumps, rubella. Uh, after that, I mean, what is there that's uh, really safe and effective that those are basically it? Those are the big guns. And well, I wouldn't even say, you know, MMR is a tough one because. Yeah, yeah I, I actually got my uh, levels checked and they were at zero for a job. I didn't want to have to get any vaccines. Um, I had to it was a job working that required vaccines. And uh, I got my um, antibody levels checked and they were all zero. Well, wow. so it was all gone. The, the vaccine yeah. that I got as a child was yeah, well, the well, yeah, you might still have like T cell and B cell immunity, so sometimes that's not the the whole story. But um, you know, MMR is a it's a tough one because um, you know measles, mumps, and rubella and rubella can be bad. Uh, you know, on kids, like the you know, there's a non-zero chance that they could um, you know end up like seriously harmed or you know, killed from the measles, but at the same time, like, uh, the MMR shot can, you know, they're, that's the only one, I, only other one I've heard of that, uh, you know, I've known more than one person who's ever had like a really bad adverse reaction. Um, and actually my, uh, my parents talked about how, um, one of my older brothers during his, after his MMR shot, there was, uh, like he started, uh, he started having seizures that night and had seizures for several days and was just running a really high fever and, and all of this stuff. So, 
uh, and he seemed to have really severe allergies after that, that he's really had all his life. Um, and, you know, that was the explanation given for me about why, <laughs> why I don't have any childhood vaccinations. <laughs> uh, that and the fact is that uh, I was terrified of needles as a kid. Um, so I went, I think I had to be, uh, I'd broken my arm and I had to go in for a surgery on it at the hospital. I had to be like rebroken because it was only broken partway through and it was growing back at the wrong angle. And I think there was some requirement that I like needed my childhood vaccines or something to be able to go to the hospital or something like, I don't know, whatever reason I was, I was in like the pre-op workup and they nurse comes in, you know, and tries to jab me. And like, I got up and streaked out of the doctor's office in my underwear, uh, went and hid in the car. <laughs> um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, somehow uh, never got any of those, but uh, never got the measles, never got the mumps. I might have just uh, might have just been one of those free riders on uh, everybody else's herd immunity. Well, either way, uh, the question is uh, about the um, the research labs in in Ukraine. I didn't follow that story too closely except to, to see that it was happening. And it looked to me, I think it was uh, Samantha Power. One of them came out, or maybe it was Kamala Harris. Victoria Newland. Oh, Victorian that's who it was. Senate. But but yeah. didn't they deny it first and then deny and then and then uh and then admit to it like right well, afterwards? The media was already the media was already saying that like all the you know the Russian propagandists are trying to do this. Other and you know it was on like the first day of invasion. There was an account and you know posted about it, and um, you know somebody had asked. You know some people were just kind of like, you know, what? Come on, this like sounds like some Q stuff. Like let's just try to be serious. You know, these are people who are pretty based on COVID, but you know it just sounded kind of conspiratorial. But I had already, uh, I had went down kind of a rabbit hole on when the there was like a attempted coup i think last year in kazakhstan and there's bio labs there uh so i you know i kept my eyes on the the ukraine stories but it was one that you know the the first twitter account that was posting about it like he got his account taken down you know within like six hours so it's like oh this is a this is a hot button one that uh you know we can't can't touch just yet but uh, well they basically admit now right that covid was yeah. from the lab and then they i don't know they 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 first admitted that it was from the lab and then i saw some official report or some official inquiry I forgot who who put it out but it was somebody from the government saying no it wasn't from the lab it was from this you know bat market this open air food market like they it was the original story but uh you know there was a guy who wrote an article in the american mind and very early 2020 maybe april 2020 speculating uh and making a pretty strong argument that it's highly likely that this was an accidental leak from a lab you know his argument in this in this uh series of essays was that uh that protocol at at labs for safety and containment are not followed and the people who run these labs are just you know joe schmo you and i 
sure they have these PhDs in toxicology or whatever, but at the end of the day, they're just guys who take their lunch break as well. And they, and they skirt uh, OSHA regulations as much as they possibly can. And it's most likely that uh, COVID probably came from a lab. And of course his account is gone. Uh, he's gone. He was a big, not, not too big, but uh, you know, over 10,000, maybe 20,000 followers, his account got taken down. And then, of course, the official narrative, the official uh, sources went on to confirm that what he was saying was probably true. But, uh, you know, to get back to the global supply chain issue, this this, you know, everything we've been talking about, both COVID and the previous discussion about uh, about the global uh, market for beef and, and meat products and everything. We have such an intricate uh, network spread throughout the globe of supply and uh, and and the markets things are brought to market on the other side of the world that uh, any disruption just causes ripples that take years to play out so i was reading articles in 2020 at the beginning of covid talking about the effects i remember reading in the financial times for example they were saying that the uh, inflation that was going to follow from these lockdowns probably would not be felt until 2022 and here we are in the beginning of 2022, and the financial press's predictions are coming true, uh, but we conveniently have this war to blame on the inflation and not the not the uh, botched yeah. you know decision making by our leaders. Anyway, that's a little bit of a digression. My point though is um, to bring up the the research labs in the Ukraine. Uh, it, 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 it has to, it should make anyone, right? It should make a normie. It should make even, even a liberal. It should make even the most dyed in the wool blue state liberal, at least scratch his head, if not deeply concerned that we have all this high level research going on in a, in a, in a, I, I almost said a third world country, but a second, you know, I don't, I don't want to be too insulting here. I was going to say it's a third world the or a second Eastern European you get my uh, point though yeah you get where I'm culture going country but yeah I mean and it's 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 not just where it was at I mean it, it would be one thing if these were you know just like some flus or whatever but I mean we're talking you know Marburg virus being kept in a BSL-3 facility which that should be in a BSL-4 minimum right um you know, Ebola virus, uh, Lassa virus, Juden virus, Machupo virus, uh, you know, this Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever virus, right? Just, uh, <laughs> you know, anthrax, uh, you know, brucella, uh, tularema, like the, the kind of things that the, the kind of plagues that they had <laughs> in these, uh, in these research institutes, it's, you know, it's crazy stuff, but you know, the, uh, the Russians actually have a, uh, a, a even, um, I think, more shocking uh, allegation on this. Not just that there's a lab with dangerous pathogens, but actually that um, the they, U.S. is trying to create a bioweapon that will target Russian DNA. And... You know, this, this all sounds, you know, a little crazy, but, um, th you know, this kind of thing has been going on. I mean, this is, this is what bioweapons programs have been after for a long time. Uh, because as you see with COVID, you know, if, if something gets out, well, it, it affects the whole world. And so you're dealing with the same problem that you're trying to unleash on your enemies. Um, if you can, you know, 
create a sort of designer virus that uh you know doesn't affect people of your uh you know your genetic uh you know the genetic groups of uh whoever's the dominant ethnicities in your country then you know and the, i think the israelis were the first to really start working on this as they were trying to come up with something that they could release that basically <laughs> would uh only target non-jews <laughs> Uh, you know, the, and that was reported in, uh, I think Wired Magazine, like the guy did expose on it, and then he died in an Israeli airstrike, like, a couple years later. Uh, but, you know, the DNA test, I mean, China's been after this stuff, too. I'm, I'm sure America has, and, you know, it, it's not, it's not that lurid of a conspiracy uh, theory that the Russians are, are really alleging, because you know, the, the ancestral DNA tests that we have here in America, those kits, those samples are sent to China for sequencing. Um, I think it was the Financial Times had done an article on it because, uh, you know, it's like a, what, 100 bucks for 23andMe, but the actual cost for lab sequencing is higher than that. Um, so we're actually getting these tests subsidized by the Chinese government. And, you know, you know, they're keeping a database of, of the samples. Um, and Russia has been very worried about this kind of thing. Back in I think it was 2007 or 2008, they passed a law banning the export of any kind of uh, DNA samples. You know, you can't send it out of the country. And, you know, there was a, I think when, Putin's extreme social distancing was first seen back in January or so. You know, they're setting way apart him and Macron. Uh, you were tweeting about this. I wondered what you were. Go on. Yeah. So Macron, the the thing was, Macron would not take a uh, a COVID test administered by the Russians, which was the uh, you know the Russian condition for like if you're going to be like face to face with Putin. You know, we need to test you for COVID. And Macron wouldn't do it. Um, and someone from a journalist, like, talked to someone from, like, his inner circle. And they said, there is no way that we can let the president's DNA fall into Russian hands. And there's an Atlantic article from uh, several years ago. This is during the Obama presidency. But it was called Hacking the President's DNA. So talking about how... Um, you know, there's a team that would follow Obama around and, you know, they would try to sweep the hotel rooms, make sure that no, uh, no DNA samples were being left behind, you know, anywhere he went. Uh, because there was a fear that you could actually create a bioweapon specifically targeted to one individual's genome. And, you know, so... One of the things the Russians have brought up with this, though, is that there there has been a U.S. program, and this was just this was on like a federal grants website, um, and the, it, it was a U.S. government program, uh, you know, contract, um, and the contractors were supposed to go out and collect Russian DNA samples. So and th this is official. This is. Uh... Easily, easily available information, uh, not proving this, reinforcing this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, this is stuff from, you know, to what I've learned on, 
and and a lot of this is uh you can go on some of these websites where the the federal government posts like their uh you know requests for proposals and stuff and there's just wild stuff all over that but yeah these are uh these are from that it's not just you know the russians saying like oh americans were trying to go collect these samples it's like no they've, they've got the uh they've got the papers yeah it's like floating these wild proposals like uh the the, the whole thing about trying to to get uh, uh an exploding cigar to to um to castro is this is this scientifically possible at all to do things like like this you know these are just things were like we're throwing stuff at the wall to see anything that uh, that will will stick or is this technology possible? Um, I mean, is it proven I, to have been done in the past? Yeah, you know, I, I haven't seen. Uh, it's hard to say exactly because this is uh, very secretive, right? Um, and it's also something that I haven't seen, you know, really uh, tested out fully. Um, but, but it's not accepted, you know, scientific. But, you know, I mean, we, we, we've already have like personalized gene therapies for cancers and stuff that are starting to, you know, filter, filter. in. so, you know, uh, personalizing medicine has been kind of one of the big things they've been pushing for, um, you know, a while now, like since kind of the, uh, you know, just after Obamacare, you know, people thinking like this is going to, uh, this is just going to be personalized uh, medicine to everyone, and um, you know, it's like you can have like let's you have cells that have a very specific DNA sequence, uh, so you could have like a pretty benign virus. But if the virus crosses path with cells that have that DNA sequence, the sequence could act as like a sort of molecular key that would unlock like these secondary functions of the virus that, you know, aren't so benign. And that, you know, that secondary sequence could trigger something like, uh, you know, a fast acting like prion disease or, or something like this, right? This is uh, crazy, man. Targeted, specific, genetic bioweapons uh targeted at individuals and ethnicities uh that's fucking yeah it's it's you know it's crazy but no i don't think it's crazy it's just well it's wild but you know what ralph barrick was doing was wild like the fact that you know we're all getting infected with this virus that has you know bits of hiv spliced into it along with like you know a mouse coronavirus and a bat coronavirus and all this like you know we're we're really living in an upside down world we're in uncharted territory and the fact that they could resurrect these virus viruses or just create viruses in the lab from multiple viruses you know that you could just like cut and paste different aspects of this it's well listen man i I, look i was going to put this uh interview on itunes but i think we're i think i think we've gotten fully into like sensor territory here so it's just gonna go it's just only gonna go on my Substack now but since since i've decided that and and you and whole hog on the on the vaccine i might as well go whole hog whole, whole hog excuse me you know i wanted to bring this up earlier i am drinking a uh, uh, and tonic in in honor of uh, mother russia here so i'm a little bit uh, i'm pretty far into it at this point 
so maybe maybe my guard is down a little bit or maybe you just kind of talked me into the uh the place the mindset that i was that got me where i am now with you and and other anons on twitter um so so it's interesting uh i i want to get back to what you were talking about so bear with me just for a minute and we'll, we'll circle back um back in 2020 when the economy was shut down and the first stimulus was proposed, interestingly enough, by the Democrats, even though there was a Republican in the White House, uh, we had this uh, this 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 uh, stimulus package, which was over a trillion dollars. Um, and and the the shutdown ended up leading to the greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression. I think the numbers eventually overtook the 2008 uh, recession as the second biggest uh, the, the biggest, the, the coronavirus recession was the biggest one since the Great Depression. Uh, so it certainly looks like a manufactured takeover of the economy and a manufactured uh, shutdown of the economy. And I'll just briefly mention one thing that uh, part of the supply chain issues that we were talking about before were caused by the state disallowing ships coming into port with uh, uh, products to be you know, put in warehouses to go to market, uh, they were made to wait offshore for sometimes weeks at a time to check the vaccination status of the uh, of the, uh, the the crew of the ship. And uh, sometimes they would even be vaccinated, but the papers didn't, you know, match up to our standards, up to our protocol and our bureaucracy, our bureaucratic standards. Uh, so they would have to process them and it would take weeks at a time. Now, I, I can't, possibly imagine a more manufactured economic crisis than that and one one must one wonders why that's being done um but to me to see everything that's playing out regardless of how you want to uh speculate on where the virus came from and how it got deployed it certainly looks like the crisis is being capitalized on capitalized upon as a as a major takeover of the economy um and now everything hangs in the balance of what they do with interest rates. I mean, we are totally, our economy is totally at the mercy of what the Federal Reserve does uh, with interest rates. So I wanted to loop back to our previous conversation, and I will, because I do have a specific question on everything you were saying. But um, because I wanted to talk to you about supply chains, I wonder if you have anything to say about that, about, about interest rates, where they're at now. You know, I've looked at, I just before we went on air, I looked at mortgage rates today for a 30-year fixed mortgage. And it's up like one or two percentage points uh, from the, the lowest it got during the, during the um, excuse me, during the um, pandemic. So we are in a precarious you know, position right now with the economy. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, about uh, the, the, me referring to this as a takeover of the economy by the state and by the federal government. Yeah, I mean, it, it really feels like a... Uh an attempt to do like a controlled demolition. Yes. Um, perfect term. Perfect term. And, you know, I, I think actually the war, is, the war itself, you know, I, I mean, as bad as it is, I know there's, you know, there's um, civilians caught in the crossfire, you know, there's people dying on both sides. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a bad deal. And I, you know, I don't think it should have ever been allowed to get to this point. Um, you know, because it was very obvious from the start that uh, what Russia's position was going to be and that they would fight to keep NATO from coming up to their borders. So, you know, 
with that said, the, the actual kinetic war really just feels like a smokescreen kind of on both sides. Uh, and I think the economic war is the real story behind this. And things like, uh, you know, <clears throat> the trade between Russia and India, then, you know, being denominated in rupees, right? And, you know, using the, uh, you know, the Chinese yuan to do like valuations on the oil that Saudi Arabia will be, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is like building refineries or something in China, like $10 billion worth, something like that. I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of these deals, you know, popping off. And it seems like we're, really starting to accelerate the downfall of King Dollar. And when that happens, that's when we're really up a creek, right? So if, I've know, had, uh, forgive me for interrupting you again. I've had friends telling me, one guy in particular, uh, he knows who he is. I won't name him, but he knows what he's talking about. And he told me in no uncertain terms that he thinks that uh, there are going to be some big economic players on the global stage that aren't going to be trading in US dollars very soon. Uh, I don't know if I buy that, but uh, this was not coming from a random person who talks out of his ass. So if you want to comment on that, I'd be interested to hear what you think. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think, um, I really think that, you know, players all around the world, I mean, I think even including the Europeans, um, you know, they want to get out from under the, basically the trick the U S has pulled on, on the world for a while, which is the dollar is the reserve currency. And, you know, it worked out for a long time, as long as we kept the inflation low, because when your reserve currency, when you're a reserve currency and you're hitting like seven to 10 percent inflation, right? Brazil, what currency do they use to, to back their local currency? They use the U.S. dollar. So suddenly they're used to having like 10 percent inflation already because they print up a bunch of Brazilian reals. But then suddenly the thing that backs the Brazilian reals is also inflating. So you get this compound inflation effect. And that's the thing is like we have, uh, you know, through the, the massive amount of, of money printing that we've done um, throughout the pandemic, which is, you know, hugely unnecessary. You know, I mean, you had... And it wasn't just a stimulus that went to individuals that amounted to, I don't know, maybe 500 billion or something, but we spent trillions of, of dollars, like, you know, three times the cost of the Afghan war, which was already pretty expensive. Didn't, didn't we print enough money to make over half of the circulating money in the world, in the country right now came from the stimulus? Yeah. Yeah. And like half of all dollars ever printed in history, you know, been printed in like the last two years or something it's a mind boggling uh, number. And, you know, we've, the thing about it is we've been able to export a lot of that overseas. So this is the perks of empire, right? So we have a military, military supremacy, uh, which backs up the U S dollar. And that's, you know, our two institute, that's our two tricks as a superpower. Um, uh, so when either one of those institutions looks to be in question, then suddenly the whole, you know, the whole system starts to be called into question. Now, you know, we're not going to move off of it overnight, but, you know, uh, other countries start wondering, you know, should we start moving uh, maybe to something else? And I think what we've done with Russia has been very, um, 
very bad for our our international leadership in terms of like our institutions being, you know, considered as like these fair and partial, you know, structures that can be trusted by the world. So things like the SWIFT banking system, you know, uh, combination of, you know, European and American, uh, you know, sort of like global financial institutions. Countries are now seeing that this can, they can just be cut out of this, you know, in the, the blink of an eye over something that is, um, you know, Russia is acting in a way that's much more restrained than the United States or NATO has acted in any of the past several wars that they've been in. That's the cold hard truth. You know, Kharkiv got hit hard by, you know, it was like some serious style, uh, you know, attacks there. Uh, but, you know, you had uh, paramilitaries taking up positions in residential apartment buildings and stuff. So, you know, it's not a huge surprise that this is happening. But at, so far, Russia has taken extraordinary pains to avoid civilian casualties, while the Ukrainian army has like shot missiles into, you know, residential areas of Donbass since 2014. Uh, you know, it's a very one sided thing. And you know, I, I have to wonder, you know, it does seem now like the Russians have kind of slowed the roll. They're either going to take their time and march through or they think they're going to reach a breakthrough in negotiations or uh, this is this is theater and they're making a chess move that, you know, they knew that America would react in a you know, kind of hysterical way and would do. Uh, would do them the benefits of cutting them out of the global economy, uh, which I think actually they have a lot more leverage than, uh, than we do at this point, you know, between the fertilizer, the oil and natural gas, and, you know, their ability to uh, deal with a lot of these other large countries like India, you know, we're, I mean, like we're, we have politicians talking about sanctioning India right now, just because India still wants to, uh, you know, maintain relations with Russia. Right. And like India is like the largest democracy in the world. Uh, there are absolutely people you want on your side when you're dealing with China. They did very well by us during the pandemic. Um, they kept medical supply chains open when they really didn't have to, when they were really going through, you know, challenges themselves. Uh, you know, as far as like a stable partner, you really couldn't ask for a better government to deal with. And I'm not saying this just because, you know, Modi sent a letter saying he liked my work, but uh, I will say that it's crazy to me. Wait, did that happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I posted it a while back. I didn't see that. Yeah. I got I got a thing from the Indian embassy that are like, is there, you know, like we have a letter from the prime minister. He sends his greetings like, is there a good place to send this to? Holy shit. I was like, what? No, some of my COVID stuff uh, went went big in India. I was complimentary of how they handled it because India did also they they handled COVID really well. You know, they passed out uh, early treatment kits um, for free and and all this stuff. So, um, anyway, you know, it's like why would we want to? Do we really want to like screw up our relationship with this huge country? 
it's a very important growing country. Like, do we really want to screw all that up? Like just because they want to maintain a relationship with Russia because they've had a great relationship with Russia for, you know, since their founding, uh, it really suggests to me that like, you know, it, it's hard to, it, it's either, it either has to be like a deliberate plot to just like completely destroy the United States of America as a global power or these just have to be like the most insane, uh, unhinged people imaginable. And, you know, I've, I've had enough proximity around them to where I, I kind of think it's the latter. You know, I mean, what, what I usually land on is that like they're being acted on by satanic influences, you know, to do all of this bigger meta stuff. But, uh, you know, I haven't really met anyone in Washington, D.C. yet that I've ever thought was like actually capable of, you know, orchestrating a well-known plan like this. It's uh, and it's somehow it, it's somehow scarier to think that, you know, maybe there just might not be anybody at the wheel, you know. Well, they don't have to. Uh, I mean, this is uh, people say this all the time, but they don't have to deal with the fallout from their their actions they don't have to deal with the consequences of their decisions they're terrible decisions and clearly they're willing i mean if you watch if you see what they did to iraq um especially with the uh insurgency the collapse of the government and the insurgency and the rise of isis um they they that is the biggest debacle i've ever seen in my entire life and the people who did that just kept right on going right through 2008 the opioid crisis and you know, the way they, they manage COVID, no one can say that we did a good job managing the, the crisis at all. Uh, in fact, all we all you can say about America is that we appear to have capitalized on it. You know what? Before we put the COVID talk to rest, I did want to bring one other thing up real quick, though. Uh, I, we don't need to get into the merits of plaquenil and hydrochloroquine. Um, or hydrochloroquine. I don't know. Are hydrochloroquine. Are, are hydro yeah is that the same thing as plaque that's the same thing plaque yes of course okay okay uh i don't want to get into the merits of that only because it will get us off way too far into the weeds but you were mentioning the fact that during the russian flu and as everybody knows now during covid we uh kind of rushed through a vaccine and we we we, we skirted all the 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 uh, bureaucracy that you had to do to get a, a vaccine to the market to kind of rush it through and that's what trump tried to do with hydrochloroquine and he got it's just crazy the way he got totally shut down and i have to admit when i saw him do that i myself thought it, he was pushing it through too fast uh, and it never really went anywhere but then immediately afterwards they turned around and did the exact same thing with the vaccine that he tried to do with uh yeah. hydrochloroquine yeah. and it's just like that was that was one of the moments that they lost a lot of uh, legitimacy with me and and my thinking was already going in the direction that I, I pointed out earlier. And that was kind of like the, the last, you know, straw for me that like, they're going to, they're going to scream and yell at Trump and shut this down. And then they're going to turn around and do the same exact thing with the vaccine. I don't know if, if you would agree with me. Yeah, I, I totally agree because I mean, you know, look at the worst case scenario, uh, hydroxychloroquine is not really going to hurt you. Like, unless you have like just some super rare drug reaction, I mean, I've taken this stuff traveling in South America uh, to keep from getting malaria. Uh, it's prescribed very commonly to lupus patients for dealing with autoimmune issues. And that that 
that's what should uh, be the big tip, tip off is it's an immunomodulator, right? Like it's not just, and they were saying like, oh, it's, it's a get, you know, it's an antiparasitic. Like how could this have any action against a virus? And it's like, well, it's not the virus that kills you. It's the inflammatory reaction to it. And look, uh, this modulates the immune system and, you know, will probably keep your immune system from killing you if you have COVID. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, it, it, work, it works fine. It works as an antiviral if you stack it with a uh, mucolytic drug called bromhexine. I, uh, I thought it was mixed. I thought Trump was saying you mix it, not mix it, but you 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 take it in conjunction with uh, Zithromax, which is an antiviral. Yeah, that was that was a uh, protocol developed by a uh, Orthodox doctor up in, in New York. I'm not sure why it was stacked with this with uh, azithromycin, um, but yeah, I think it was like zinc, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin was what they were using. So that might have been seen as being synergistic. I don't know. I've I have my own stack. I, I respect those. There's actually a lot of options for treating COVID out there. That's that's the thing about it is like we've had a lot of high quality autism that's been uh, devoted to finding treatments for this. And so, you know, we've we've got a lot of tools now, which it's good because, you know, it's not like we're just depending on like just ivermectin, you know, and then like we're screwed if a strain comes up that's resistant to ivermectin. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things you can do for it. So, uh, but I'm still, you know, I'm still pretty shocked, like how late it took for things that, you know, myself and other people on Twitter were talking about, you know, in 2020, like how long it took to show up at some of the clinical staff level, you know, like the realization that uh, blood clots are one of your, one of the big problems that, you know, you're, you're dealing with serotonin levels that are, high and there's you know a uh there's an old antihistamine called ciproheptidine that'll you know i've heard people taking it you know they, their oxygen would be down in the 80s and they have like an almost overnight turnaround yeah it's like asthma drugs uh they can be nebulized hospitals still don't do that because they're scared of giving nebulizer treatments like there's uh there's this total disconnect between you know, some of these hospitals that are just still going with NIH guidelines that, you know, take, it's over a year lead time from, you know, being identified by competent doctors to when it actually shows up in the recommendations. And, it, you know, it's really frustrating. And, it, you know, I, I think these people should be uh, put on trial, really, you know, there needs to be some kind of justice made it out. But, you know, it's also just the bureaucratic process. These, you know, these bureaucrats moved at the same pace as they always do. You know, they didn't treat it like a national emergency, even though everybody else was. So, you know, I think when you put these people on trial, obliterate all the public health institutions and scatter them to the wind and just adopt like a latin american model you know mexico was handling it better than we did so i think at this point we should just uh you know aim to emulate them well one of the things that was just so frustrating to watch was that their their refrain was trust the science trust the science but the thing is is they just threw the conventional scientific wisdom about this sort of thing completely out the window to to go with a whole new 
you know, game plan and a whole new, a whole new approach. And part of the reason was because of, you know, the supply chain issues. So for example, the uh, monoclonal antibodies, uh, those are, those are given to specific strains and each monoclonal antibody is developed to be given to a specific strain of COVID early in the treatment, you know, or excuse me, early in the infection. Right. But you saw things like people coming in with COVID uh, late in their infection when they're like already improving and already getting better and they still gave it to them. And then, uh, or because of the supply chain issues, they would run out of a monoclonal antibody for a certain strain. This happened with Omicron a lot. They ran out pretty quickly and they were giving them the monoclonal antibodies from the prior strain, which is like, which is like giving them nothing. Well, I have to imagine that the reason they were doing that had nothing to do with science and was because they spent, you know, either the hospital spent millions of dollars on a supply or the government just gave it to them because the government was stockpiling it, which, by the way, the government never did before. We would have drug shortages all the time because the government wouldn't, uh, you know, back certain uh, medications. It's really really like a communist system, you know, where it's like, okay, we administered this many units of, uh, of Regeneron today, right? You know, it, it reminds you. Yeah, like, I kept calling it a takeover of the economy, but that's what I meant when I was saying that. I mean, it's yeah. like the implementation of communism. But, but it really, it really is like the petty bureaucracies of uh, of communism, both you know Chinese variants and uh, and Soviet variants. Uh, you know, one of the other really nasty incentives in this too was that uh, if you put someone on remdesivir, there would be a bonus on the entire hospital bill. It would be paid and you know, there were bonuses for if you put patients on ventilators and all the, and and so remdesivir. Yeah. It's it's pretty accepted that people were being killed actively by the ventilators in the early stages. Yeah. Well, early stages and late stages, I mean, during the Delta wave, this started happening. They would put them on the ventilators because you could basically put them on fentanyl and then ventilate them. And then you wouldn't have to check in on them. So completely take over their work of breathing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, all right, we won't, uh, these people can't complain and they can't like ring the bell for the nurse and all this, like, you know, now there were people who were actually legit in respiratory distress and they just went down that way because staff didn't understand that, you know, they were by pouring oxygen on the inflammatory fire, they were just making things worse. Like they should have been doing inhaled steroids. They should have been doing, um, intravenous, uh, and acetylcysteine, which is, a, which is a antioxidant, um, also replenishes the glutathione in your lungs. Um, they should have been doing serotonin blockers because serotonin was driving like the um, the platelet activation and the clotting and the inflammation and all this stuff. So, you know, you're just dialing up the oxygen percentages, and that's just really feeding this, uh, you know, these oxidative reactions right and so it's like the oxidative damage is destroying the lungs and the higher the oxygen concentration the more oxidation there is um so it's a bad thing because you know they're giving them oxygen trying to relieve like the short term uh or or, you know the immediate problem of, of them having respiratory distress but that uh, it's just leading them like down the path to, you know, total lung failure. 
So yeah, I think they were blowing them out with high peep. Yeah, that's the other thing. Is, I mean, there, there were nurses who were not trained on them that in some of those early hospitals that were, uh, you know, you had just like people had no idea what they were doing. Uh, med students, all this just, you know, being <laughs> kind of like, all right, go at it. Um, and there's some there's some footage from uh, some of those early hospitals that um, there was one Elmhurst in Queens, New York. That place was a horror show. Like people were being admitted for panic attacks and stuff, and being put in COVID wings, and then they were you know being vented and killed. And you know people like in their thirties, right? That they didn't even come into the hospital with COVID. So uh, there's all that. But you know, like Remdesivir is. Uh, you know, <laughs> will practically kill you in and of itself. Uh, yeah, it's very hard on the liver. And when the liver becomes inflamed, it starts, uh, it can lead to hepatopulmonary syndrome, which actually affects your breathing. So you don't want liver inflammation while you're having a respiratory uh, issue. Uh, but remdesivir was inflaming the liver. And Gilead actually had a different prodrug <clears throat> that was on their shelf um, that would have like had all of the, you know, theoretical benefits of remdesivir as an antiviral, but it wouldn't have had to uh, be, it wouldn't have had to be uh, metabolized as much in the liver. Right. So uh, it wouldn't have had to go through as many passes to be processed into the right molecule. I think it would, it would just go through on first pass, but um yeah, I mean, the hospitals were being paid a bonus by the federal government if they would use remdesivir. So it's like remdesivir was the only medication people were getting. Well, they're also getting it on hospital admission. And you don't like you don't need an antiviral at that point because you really don't have much virus left by the time you're in a hospital. Um, so they should have been getting blood thinners and steroids. Um, and, you know, in the bad cases is some, you know, salvage therapies. Uh, they should have been getting that and instead they're getting like an antiviral and they don't really have virus left in their body. So, yeah. Tell know. me, tell me if you've heard this one. Uh, the, there's a protocol for giving the monoclonal antibodies and for remdesivir and part of the protocol specifically for the antibodies, but remdesivir had a serious protocol as well. Part of the protocol was you only give it to people who were going to go home, not people who are going to be admitted and the speculation uh, at, at a certain point it seemed to become clear that the idea was that it it was like, oh, the monoclonal antibodies are having this massive success rate. Look, 100% of the people who got them were discharged from the hospital that same day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of corrupt stuff that's going on in this. And, you know, from the trials to. Uh, yeah, the the vaccine trials and all this stuff. It's just the whole thing has been a, a yeah. The hospitals lost a lot of money, and I you know I was expecting there to be like an overt bailout, um, like there was for the airline industry after nine eleven. But uh, I think I think the hospitals did already get get the bailouts because bailout they lost... was basically the CARES Act. It was basically yeah, just exactly like. And that's how the Medicaid hospitals were surviving. It's like, all right, let's like, and I think that's one of the things why there was like this sort of racial disparity. It's like, no, it's actually that you put 
hospitals in the hood that are actually going to try to kill as many people as possible and collect the money because this is how they uh yeah this is how they survive uh yeah that obesity vitamin d status that pretty much sums up um you know the issue with with the racial disparities on that um the, the racial disparity stuff is interesting though because like you in early colonial America, part of the reason why slaves were never really brought into the North to a great extent was um, they were would die at very high numbers during respiratory virus season. So there's a sort of natural geographic distribution of where uh, Black people could, you know, survive and thrive in North America. And so that seems to... Uh, that seems to kind of play a role because like you've, we've had the great paradox of, you know, black Americans, um, you know, getting hit by this at very high rates, uh, you know, high death rates and all. But at the same time, Africa has been like totally spared throughout the entire pandemic. Yeah. And- yeah. I, I always found that so fucking interesting. Like, are we just not getting the numbers in from there? What's going no, on? It's, it's uh, actually some of the countries like South Africa, there's high levels of it. But guess what? It's the countries that don't have river blindness. Oh, what is that? So river blindness is a parasitic disease. Uh, if you get bitten enough times by this fly that carries this parasite, uh, you eventually go blind. Like whole villages would go blind. Okay, yeah, I've heard of this. So Jimmy Carter sets up this program to where he uh, eliminates it, right? And the way he eliminates it in these countries, he partners with the ministries of health and they have this really advanced distribution campaign to get medication to everybody out in the bush, certain, uh, a certain anti-parasitic drug called ivermectin. And, <laughs> you know, this stuff is like, Ah, uh, yes, yes. That's in the population. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so th- there was a study actually done that where, you know, they control for the countries that are part of like this, uh, you know, Carter initiative and countries that aren't part of it. And, you know, the death rate in the countries that were part of it is, you know, like a very tiny fraction of all the other countries. Yeah, I had read about this. I forgot about this, but I wanted to say something quickly about the racial disparities. You notice... That when, um, you know, COVID was was uh, raging and, and people were dying, it was, uh, oh, it's disproportionately affecting people of color because of, uh, you know, racism. But then when people were refusing to get the vaccine and, and the people refusing to get the vaccine, according to, you know, the powers that be, were, were solely and singularly responsible for the spread of COVID, it was all suddenly white people. All of a yeah, sudden there we're was, all white people. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was... Uh, that's the reality too. It's like that. Those were the white people that, yeah, it was older people, um, you know, like baby boomers or even silent generation. Uh, and then just, but plenty of African-Americans and black people were, were refusing the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. So they, th- that was the thing. It's like, they were, they were the victims, but at the same, you know, it was like, okay, the blacks and Hispanics are being hit super hard by this. Um, we have to lock down in solidarity with them, but we have to interrupt that for the BLM riots and we can all go right. outside. And then You're right. You back. can't go to a concert. You can't go to a, a funeral yeah. and you can't go to a, a holiday dinner with your family, but you can go out for a black, a black lives matter rally. Yeah. And 
you know, that was, I mean, that was, you know, the, the racializing of that, I think, you know, if like who we care about who dies. I, I mean, I thought that was just disgusting. Right. Because, um, you know, splitting it out like that, you know, as if like, this is why people dying is bad. Right. If it was just the, the, you know, white working class and there was plenty of, plenty of white working middle class people who, you know, died of a tube, a lot of people in the rural areas, you know, I mean, these rural hospitals were like death factors, man. Um, it took them even longer to kind of get with the program on, you know, what you needed to do to treat it. Um, you know, and so, yeah, and this was like hitting, uh, this was hitting the conservative uh, evangelical churches really hard because they were just having church anyway throughout it. And so you'd have these big outbreaks, um, you know, and in each outbreak you'd have, um, you know, several people die. Uh, so I, yeah, you know, I've, you know, it's, it's affected me personally, uh, you know, and then people, I, you know, my own family and then, you know, people I, uh, I've known, uh, you know, several preachers and, and all this sort of thing. So, you know, that was, it was a thing. And it was always like, well, you know, it's like, the, you know, there are so many black people dying of this. And I was like, okay, well that, you know, that's bad, but like, you know, this is just disrespectful. Um, <laughs> to, you know, to really take a, you know, tragedy like this and then just like, you know, cram it into your racial narrative it's just, uh, you know, I don't know what kind of freak you have to be to, you know, to do that, right? And then, you know, it's like, well, okay, well, you can't have, uh, you, can, you can have only 12 people at, the, at your funeral, right? You can't have the funeral indoors and, and all this kind of stuff. But there's uh, 100,000 people in the streets of Washington, D.C. right now, you know, yeah. there. And you know they're laughing about uh, the president having to go down into the bunker because you have a mob of psychos, you know, about ready to storm the fence and kill him, right? And there, were, and there were people who were, you know, making fun of him for that, like these, uh, you know, upper middle class you know, kids on Instagram are just like, yeah, you know, Trump's hiding in the bunker, blah blah blah. And then January six rolls around, right? And suddenly it's another group of people scaring politicians. And it's the worst thing that's ever happened. <laughs> yeah. And I know that, you know, pointing out her hypocrisy is not original or anything, but I think it does. Uh, it's kind of thing. It does underscore the fact that, you know, we have a real problem because, uh, you know, we have to share a country with these people and that's becoming i think more and more untenable with each one of these uh psyops that comes along you know whether it's blm whether it's the vaccines whether it's the election or you know now whether it's you know russia and the ukraine you know like just we keep going from one thing to be retarded about to another thing <laughs> Well, you were saying about how we were like lurching from one crisis to the next. And, and it seems like hyper real, like this, this hyper reality. Um, it, it, it leaves the people in uh, this like heightened state of anxiety. Like they're constantly waiting for the other foot to drop. 
And sometimes I, I get the impression that like the, the other foot never really drops, but, but they think it does because they need it to like relieve their anxiety because they keep thinking like, yeah. it, 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 I mean, how many things right now are hanging over our heads of like imminent doom and imminent catastrophe, the, the, the nuclear war, the, the, the population decimating pandemic, uh, global warming is always, uh, you know, coming back up in the news over and over again. It's like they have all the, and uh, not to mention economic catastrophe. So there's all these, uh, you know, calamities that they're constantly like hanging over our head and it, it leaves people in this heightened state of anxiety, not to mention the racism thing. Um, so it, it just, at this point, it, you have to wonder how much of it is just uh, hysteria, just, just plain hysteria. I mean, it's just that pointing out the hypocrisy, you're right, is, is pretty, um, it's almost futile. But what you were saying before about sharing a country with these people, I mean, the very people who were just calling you a literal Nazi are now turning around and screaming in your face because you're not backing them supporting literal Nazis in, yeah. in Ukraine. Yeah. It's like. <laughs> and now it's like if you even, you know, if you mention right uh these affiliations or like you ask you know like what's that uh what's that symbol right like you know when nato's posting the black sun yeah. <laughs> um you even mentioned that they get mad now right <laughs> it's like did you did you guys not did you guys not get the memo the other night like uh, you know, we're now saying that uh, Hitler actually wasn't that bad compared to Putin. Yeah, I mean, there are there are like threads on Twitter of blue checks just making arguments that like, hey, guys, you know, hit, compared to Putin, you know, and maybe you even retweeted this one. If compared to Putin, you know, Hitler is actually a pretty good guy. Yeah, well, there was Michael McFaul. This was like on uh, Rachel Maddow's Twitter, like tweeting out the clip from it. But he was Michael McFaul, who's former ambassador to Russia, was saying that like, Hitler never killed ethnic Russian, uh, ethnic Germans. Yeah. Right. This so is, this is what Putin, I saw. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, unlike Putin, you know, Hitler never killed his own people. I was like, look, I'm not even, you know, I'm just like, whatever, you know, a realist when it comes to world war two. And I don't, you know, get into the moral browbeating or whatever, but I was like, but you know, Hitler did kill, uh, I know at least, 200,000 German children uh, who had disabilities as part of Action T4. You know, I'm like, did you guys forget that, you know, there were other aspects of, of this whole program that were uh, questionable? You know, it's not just, uh, you know, the one special ethnicity that he targeted. Like, uh, yeah, and I remembered it because uh, I was uh, visiting a afghan uh refugee uh who had been like a translator there that i made the acquaintance of um after a suicide attempt at a mental hospital in vienna and i was uh walking up there and uh yeah i see like all these lights out on the lawn and i you know find like a plaque and it's like yeah yeah each one of these was like a kid who was experimented on in the 30s you know, like died this, you know, horrible death, um, you know, cause like they were deaf or something. Right. So, you know, so that's the thing, man, if like, if your entire worldview is going to be uh, revolving around like world war two and the Holocaust, like if this is, you know, your like the basis of the modern religion, 
then I think you at least owe it to yourself to try to, uh, you know, understand that bit of history a little better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's everybody's go-to. Remember Lewis Black had that whole bit about how he said, Jeff, Jeff, uh, excuse me. Um, Glenn Beck, I almost said Jeff Beck, Glenn Beck has Nazi Tourette's and he's talking about how insane it is that Glenn Beck kept calling uh, Obama Hitler and saying, you know, liberals were Nazis. And then all of a sudden, of course, as soon as, uh, you know, there's a Republican in the White House that that the Trump supporters were all literal Nazis. But now that we have actual Nazis, neo-Nazis on our side that are fighting, you know, the war on our side. It's not even our side, right? Because we're not even in the war. Um, all of a sudden, it's actually not that bad to be a Nazi. Yeah, yeah. Now it's now it's like you have the Ukrainian Ministry of Race Science to explaining that actually, uh, you know, <laughs> Ukrainians are a different type of Slav than the Russians. And here we have the skull measurements to prove it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. It's funny, though. I mean, I, you know, I'm not complaining, but it is uh, it is, you know, it, it's like this whole thing. You see that it's just based on expediency and on getting what they want. And they actually, you know, at their core, um, they have no value. They don't believe any of this. They, no yeah, they don't believe but, any of it. You know, and, you know, there's something uh, there's something I think uh, kind of inspiring about that. <laughs> you know? Well, it's like they've they've really uh, they've really gone beyond good and evil, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They sure have. Power that, you know, you can dance on the head of a pen. Uh, well, listen, they uh, as soon as, uh, you know, once it comes to Putin, like everything's out the window for them because Syria is considered a proxy war with Russia. And who were we backing in Syria? Of course, we were backing Al Qaeda fighters and Nurse Front fighters and Kurds who were who are who are like, you know, of course, they, they do have a socialist element to them. But at the end of the day, the Kurds are nationalists. And like those are the three groups of people, uh, uh, you know, ethnic nationalists and uh, 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 Islamic fundamentalists is who we were backing against Putin and Assad in Syria. And now it's neo-Nazis. So it's like the absolute Christian militias in Syria. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, a whole another conversation. Yes, Assad was backing and protecting the Christians. Um, I knew some Syrian Christians here, and they were like so, you know, ardently pro Assad. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you know, the the Lion of uh, Damascus. I won't say anything against them because it'll uh, definitely result in the curse being uh, put on. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, listen, I think we're winding down um, and we'll, we'll save the passage prize discussion for another thing, because there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about that. I really don't I don't want to end the show without talking about this. I want your perspective on, um, you know, the uh, supply chain thing. We didn't really get to talk about that, but that's fine, because, uh, I, you know, it's not a good idea to let the whole COVID talk drop because I think part of their motivation is to just say, Oh, COVID, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, COVID's over. That's old news. And uh, that way they want to kind of skirt responsibility. So it's good that we end up. And they can bring it right back. That's the thing. I mean, we had false, we've had several false endings to this whole thing. So, yeah, well, we'll see. I hope not, but, um, but we could, we can maybe, maybe we'll save that for part two. I would love to have you back anytime you, you are welcome here anytime. Um, this, I, you've given me so much to talk about. It's like, I don't even know where to begin, but the one thing I wanted to ask you about that I can't let you go without covering. 
Uh, when I was, you know, I've been reading a, a lot about the supply chain issues, especially over the last month, the last couple of weeks. And, um, you know, the Biden administration is trying to do some things that the, that that the most uh, stalwart, you know, nationalist uh, president could, you know, somebody orders of magnitude more uh, nationalistic than Trump never would have dreamed of, like breaking up uh, the monopolies and uh they're they're worried about um, their prospects for 2024, and I excuse me the the midterms in 2022, but also 2024. So do, do you see first of all any uh, major action on the part of the administration to alleviate some of the pain that uh, you know farmers and manufacturers and and small businesses are going through? with something like breaking up the conglomerates and, and breaking up the monopolies. And then what prospects do you see for uh, Republicans and Democrats in 2022 and 2024 in light of the economic uh, situation? Kind of a big question there, but uh, we big question. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I don't have a lot of special insight into what the administration may or may not do. Uh, my impression of them is that, uh, you know, Biden is what he said he was in the State of the Union, which was the uh, the se- senator from corporate America. And he was talking about the Delaware politicians. Uh, you know, and so it's like, would he really go against uh, the big trust? Uh, you know, it would be kind of contrary to his nature. But, you know, maybe they do it out of uh, political expediency. You know, I don't put it past him to stick a knife and their patrons back but uh yeah it's it's really hard to say because it's you know i know uh, you know obama's involved to some extent um valerie jarrett some of them but it really feels like you just have uh biden kamala and saki up there as just the comedy acts and that yeah you know, we have no idea who's really making any. Uh, don't forget Pelosi. Key to oh yeah, yeah. yeah so you, you get just like clowns, right? <laughs> and Kamala is just like, oh, you well, you know, Ukraine is a country in Europe, and Russia is a larger country in Europe, and <laughs> they're a bigger country, bullying a smaller bully, and basically that's bad. You know, like. It's like people who talk to us like we're kindergartners. I mean, Biden's probably the realest one out of them all. And he's, you know, in another world half the time. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure what they're going to do. I mean, you know, we're in a, we're in a long-term bad inflation uh, situation for a while, I think, because, you know, it takes uh, 12 to 18 months for a fiscal and monetary policy decision to show up in the consumer price index so we're really just, you know, we're getting like the uh, first year of COVID and right. Like we're, um, we're maybe now just starting to see like some of the effects of Biden once he came into office, you know, so, so far we're just seeing like the consequences of, uh, you know, Trump and the democratic Congress. Uh, so that's, that's going to still be hanging out there for a while. And I think that's going to be the big motivating political issue, especially for the Hispanics, because they come from countries that have recent histories of very bad inflation. They're particularly allergic to inflation. Like if there's one issue, I think that 
uh, Latina voters are going to care about, it's going to be the inflation. This just can't, we really can't over uh, emphasize just what a plague that has been in Latin America and just how, uh, how much it freaks these people out. Uh, so that's first of all, but yeah, that they might try to do, do something that, and I think trust busting would probably be the, uh, the easiest uh, way to do this because there's really not a lot of options for high spending or, uh, you know, th there's not a lot of leverage to, to you know, for, for further stimulus. Uh, you know, we don't have, we could do it negative interest rates, I suppose, but yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about that too, interest but, rates, because like what they do with interest rates could really make or break the economy. More, yeah, more so it, than ever before. It's like it's got to be raised at some point to deal with inflation. But every time you raise it, not only do you have like all of the effects of, you know, the rates going up and, you know, mortgages and all this, but you have the service on the national debt goes up by, uh, I think, like 300 billion per point or something. It's something insane like that. Um, so it's like a you know, I think like a two and a half point increase in the interest rate would, uh, the service on the debt would go up by the amount that we spend on the U S military every year, you know, so just a astronomical amount of money and, you know, the national debt's gotten so big and all this, that, you know, debt services, uh, basically impossible to, you know, it's basically impossible to bring the interest rate up to curb inflation while being able to service that. So it's really, you're in a position of, do you default or does the dollar die? And I think we might be watching like a controlled uh, demolition of the petrodollar. And, you know, that that's, that's what's motivating all of this is, you know, the, uh, the fiscal situation of the U.S. government is just untenable over the long run, and they might be trying to uh, bring in some sort of new economic order that you know might be the uh, might be the crypto dollar. Yeah, I mean, you know what? We were just talking about this the other day, me and several other people, and they were saying that the crypto is actually because a lot of people are, are trying to say crypto is like an, an escape, and it's way it's a way for regular people to kind of get off, you know, uh, the dependency. But others are saying that the, the Great Reset is uh, centered, not centered around, but one of the one of the moves for the Great Reset is uh, moving to crypto as a way yeah, to get off the I, dollar. I, I, I have crypto, but I prefer cash. Uh, you have the anonymity of cash. Um, you know, I mean, I think we're seeing now with the way that, yeah, like the Canadian trucker situation and now yeah. like, People are having Bitcoin seized, and you know Russians are having their crypto wallets shut down, and all this. I think it's uh, I think it's a tool of social control. Absolutely. Uh, you know, anytime you're using, anytime you're talking about is using it as a replacement for money. Uh, you know, I think as as far as uh, you know, it's fun for gambling, right? Uh, you know, just regular speculation. Uh, and for some, you know, smart contracts or some, you know, interesting uh, concepts out there, but just as using it to replace, you know, normal legal tender, I just, 
you know, I'm not saying it. Yeah, and they could uh, keep track of every transaction made yeah. on crypto if they want to. Yeah, and you know, you could implement a rationing. Um, that would be quite easy, right? So it's like, okay, well, you've bought more than your one dozen. You've you've bought a dozen of eggs this week week already, right? You, you know, that's what your ration is, right? And you, we have the system to do all this. Uh, you know, the technological capability is there, and that's, uh, you know, that's pretty concerning because. You know, as extraordinary as it may seem, we've done a lot of extraordinary things in the past couple of years, and you see how quickly the, you know, the majority of the population can be whipped up into a fervor where they just, uh, it's not just that they accept this kind of stuff, they almost demand it. You know, yeah, they, I mean, you know, you've probably seen it too, the, the, the regular people want, want the government to go way harder on COVID lockdown and COVID restrictions yeah. than they, than they are, than the government themselves wants to do. Yeah. Yeah, because at least in the government themselves, they're they're kind of worried about the reaction. But a lot of these people, and a lot of it, I think, is actually driven by resentment of other people. You know, yeah. a lot of it's people without social lives, uh, you know, or people who are ugly that think everyone should wear a mask like them, right? There's, there's been an opportunity for, you know, a lot of... Uh, a lot of score settling, a lot of just abusive behavior. I mean, service workers have been insufferable during this. Service workers have turned out to be just, uh, you know, really commissars. You know, I mean, they're like they're straight out of the Red Army. You know, particularly flight attendants, right? <laughs> you know, like the there's a long history with that with the TSA and and. And it's like America's, uh, you know, America's like customer is always right culture and all that. Like, I think we pushed it so far for right. so long. And it's like a revenge of the service workers. Right. Like now they have, they have an excuse to be aggressive towards a customer. And so we're getting this whiplash effect. Uh, you know, and a lot of social hostility. <laughs> but uh well, yeah. 20, 20, the midterms in 2024, what do you, what do you think? Midterms in 2024. I mean, I think this is, I think this is going to be a, uh, it's set up to be a wild year politically. I mean, the Republicans though are being very stupid on this whole Russia front, but same time they were, you know, they were crazed uh, neocons with Afghanistan too. Uh, you know, kind of suggesting that we should have never got out. Uh and they won politically off of that. So I don't know if they're, you know, I don't know if they're going to get punished for their hawkishness or not, but I think there's, I think there's going to be a massive wave, like something that we haven't seen in our lifetimes um, in terms of like the actual shift. Now, whether that's going to manifest into, you know, 80 house seats, I don't know, because a lot of Republicans are not running in seats that they don't see as competitive. So there's only so many races that we're even putting challengers in. And I, I think this is a really bad mistake. Uh, in Virginia, what was done was the decision was made to run a candidate in every single district in every single House of Delegates uh, race statewide. And this divided the Democrats. Uh, they had to focus on their own races. They couldn't pull resources and go in and help another one. And this led to Republicans taking over the uh the house of delegates there right 
in this case, they haven't taken that strategy national. And this is a strategy that the Democrats perfected in 2008, which is just like, let's campaign everywhere. And Republicans have been like playing defense, concentrate our defensive resources and, and all this. But, you know, you end up just, uh, you know, Democrats start making breakthroughs in red states. And so you start getting states like Georgia. So, you know, Republicans, I think just by virtue of uh, the political headwinds, they're going to have a very, very good year this year, you know, almost certainly to take over the House. Um, good shot at the Senate. Um, but I don't think they're going to be fully capitalized on what they could do given the political environment. Uh, you know, I hope that changes, but, you know, mostly I, I just want uh, guys like Blake Masters to get their primary wins and, and get in because, you know, I see them as, I see Masters as like the gold, uh, gold standard candidate. 2024 is, it's a harder thing to project out because I'm not sure that uh, we can even last that long. Yeah, that's my concern. <laughs> I think with what could be coming down. And the other thing too is like, when Republicans get in power, cool, then what? Like, do we actually think that they're going to be able to turn turn this stuff around? Like, you know, a lot of these, a lot of them, they might, you know, say the right things position-wise, but I don't I don't think they have like the competence or the know-how to really, you know, improve the situation that much. Like, what are their solutions, right? Uh, yeah, they they hardly have any really. They're they're pretty like, much lockstep on the Ukraine thing. Yeah, it's like they can fall in line behind guys like Thomas Massey. That's like the only way they're gonna they're gonna do anything. But uh, and then otherwise, they're just gonna get blamed in a couple of years for uh, their failure to really clean up the problem. That's that's the thing. Is like they'll get in power, you know, like on inflation and stuff like that, and then they'll just you know be like. Uh, well, we built a second embassy in Jerusalem or something, right? You know, just some <laughs> like they like to uh, they like to redirect their nationalism somewhere else, to like some foreign country that can be like a nationalistic cause, but without you know doing it here themselves. But you know, with what could be coming down the road economically, I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know that the regime could could really keep it up. I mean, it might just make them stronger. So we might go into like a Brazil situation economically, but, you know, with the Biden administration fully in power, fully capturing all institutions. Um, or we could just get a cascade where you have some governors that, uh, you know, have states that are comparatively strong and they don't want to go down with the ship and then start, you know, building like competitive spheres of power, which I think, you know, we actually have the basic structure in the United States to do. So I, I'd like to see, uh, I'd actually see, I'd actually like to see DeSantis stay in as governor of Florida, but just slowly make himself into emperor of Florida <laughs> and then like invade Cuba. Um, that might be a little pie in the sky, the, the invade Cuba part. Well, he is starting up a uh, militia, so yeah, yeah, like I saw that national guard kind of place. I don't, oh. dude. There's a lot of Cubans in the Republican Party down there. They're very hot headed. I think in one weekend in Miami, if you, you know, 
give me enough cocaine, I think I can get a uh, an invasion of Cuba Gorn. Uh, I don't, you know, do cocaine. But I would just pass this out to the people. Uh, anyway. Oh man. <laughs> Fentanyl free though. I've heard that you know people. I've heard that cocaine in South Florida now is tainted with fentanyl, and people are uh, overdosing yeah. from just doing CPR on the people who uh, have done it. So, yeah, that's a whole nother topic of discussion. Uh, it's crazy. All right. Well, I agree with you about uh, the, the the prospects of 2024, and a good strategy going forward would be to have uh, certain holdout governors kind of solidify their states. Sadly, I don't, you know, it was, I saw some promising things like uh, they blocked some of the more insane spending plans in the most recent stimulus bill, or excuse me, not the stimulus bill, but the, the, the budget they just passed. So in that sense, um, at least they're keeping the, the Democrats from doing the, the really, the, you know, the most insane things. But on the other hand, it's almost like a clock being a broken clock being right twice a day just by default, uh, because it's just the Republicans doing what they've always done. Um, and, and it's one thing to stop the opponents from doing something insane, but it's totally another thing to have a game plan and an action plan. Well, sadly, I'm not really seeing one uh, yeah, any sort of action plan except for Trump holding his rally. So it looks like he's going to make a run. I guess that's the plan for 2024. Yeah, it looks like it seems so far away. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't even want to. I don't even want to think about the presidential election at this point. Right on. <laughs> like I'm gonna wait another uh, year or so and see if there's still a country around uh, that's like cohesive enough to <laughs> even want the presidency of. <laughs> well, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be watching the dollar. Unfortunately, man, things have to get really bad. I think bef- before that happens. Uh, but but. One of the big things in the news the last couple of days was Saudi Arabia refusing to even pick up the phone. Yeah. Uh, so that's a bad sign. Yeah. And UAE also refusing to pick up the phone. No, maybe that was the one. Or maybe yeah, or both, of both, both, both of them. Both of them. Actually, okay. Both okay. Of them. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, that was definitely coordinated and definitely plant pre-planned. I, I mean, either way, it's bad. Whether it was just because they said, uh, who gives a shit about this guy? Or if it was pre-planned, it's pretty, pretty bad. Yeah, it might have been the time difference because, you know, Biden has to be in bed by uh, 4 p.m. So <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't even really Biden calling. But listen, why don't we uh, why don't we call it a night with the with the open invitation for you to come back? Because uh, for all this talk, I feel like we barely even touched on uh, a bunch of different things. Yeah, sounds good to me. I've uh, Yeah, enjoyed talking. It's very much appreciated. And uh, we'll be in touch about when I'm going to post this. And uh, maybe I'll uh, link some of the tweets you were talking about, especially the one about Modi sending you a letter. I, that I did not know. That's amazing. <laughs> that was pretty fun. All right. So I'm going to sign off. All right. And, uh, thank you very much. Thank you.